Hello, hello, and welcome to True Crime with Mari. Here, we sit down and shed some light on true crime that has never really heard of or talked about. From past crimes to our recent present, let's go through the facts of each case from backstory to where it is now. A small note and disclaimer before we start. This case deals with heavy topics such as xenophobia, which is the dislike of or prejudice of people from other countries, children, body mutilation, and finally, murder. So please, if you cannot handle such topics or need a break from hearing these things, please do. There will be future episodes that can be more tolerable to stomach. So without further ado, let's get on to the cold, unsolved case of the Axemen of New Orleans. This case takes place roughly 30 years after the Jack the Ripper case in London's East End. The people of New Orleans grew to be afraid for their lives as someone who is still unknown to this day terrorized the streets. The person responsible has still never been caught for this crime, and although there are ties to London's Jack the Ripper, no one would ever know the person who would be taunting and terrifying not only the victims and their loved ones, but openly to the police as well. The first of these attacks had begun on the night of May 22, 1918, while Italian grocer Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine lay asleep in their bed. The culprit broke into their home and proceeded to sneak into the couple's room. He then took and sliced at each of their necks, leaving deep lacerations. Afterwards, he then took an axe and had caused severe blunt force trauma to their heads in what was believed a way to conceal the cause of death. It is said that that morning, Joseph's brother, Jake and Andrew Maggio, had found the bodies. Joseph fully passed away a few moments after his brothers had arrived, and his wife seemed to have died nearly instantly, with her head nearly severed off her body. Law enforcement was called and a sweep of the home was underway. The detectives had found bloody clothes, and which indicated that the murder had changed before leaving. In a neighboring property and a lawn near the Maggios, they had found a bloody razor that belonged to Andrew Maggio who ran a barber shop on Camp Street. However, one of Andrew's employees, Esteban Torres, told the police that Andrew had sent out the razors to have Nick's honed from it. Andrew lived in regret that he didn't hear anything in his brother's apartment that he lived near, but he was heavily intoxicated from the night before and wished he had heard his brother's groans sooner before discovering the bodies. Andrew was a primary suspect, but was released due to statements made as well as another account of a man lurking around the residence prior to what's happening. About a month later, on June 27th of 1918, in the store of Italian grocer Louis Besumer, him and his mistress Harriet Lowe were attacked while they were in the living quarters towards the back of the store. Louis Besumer was struck in his right temple. Harriet Lowe, however, was struck right above her left ear. The man that discovered them was a wagon driver named John Zenka. At around 7 in the morning while they were unconscious, they survived. Harriet would go on to describe their attacker as a mulatto, which is an outdated racial classification for people who have mixed African and European ancestry. The police arrested Louis Obicon a 41-year-old African-American man who worked in Besumer's store. 
He was eventually released due to a lack of evidence and conflicting accounts on his whereabouts. The newspapers ran rampant not on the attack, but on the couple's scandalous relationship, and reported on Basumer's life. Harriet Lowe, while still in the hospital, reveled in it, and had made many what were, at the time, taboo statements as well as conflicting statements about both the attacks and Louis Basumer. Police had Basumer in custody not as a suspect for the Axemen, but as a suspect of being a German spy. After finding letters in his home that were in Russian, German, and Yiddish, when the police questioned Lowe about it as well, she had claimed and confirmed that he was a spy for Kaiser Wilhelm II. The police were wrong about the espionage, and he was not found guilty on the assault of Harriet Lowe, and after a nine-month arrest and a ten-minute deliberation, he was let go. Harriet Lowe would pass away on August 5th of 1918 due to a surgical complication to correct the paralysis on the side of her face that she had gotten due to the attack. On the same day of Harriet Lowe's passing, that day, Anna Schneider, who was eight months pregnant at the time, woke up to find a dark figure looming over her. Her face was bashed in a multitude of times and the attacker had attempted to scalp her. At midnight, her husband, Edward Schneider, had returned home from work and found Anna Schneider. She survived, but had no memory of her attack or her attacker. And two days later, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. The husband told the police that nothing but six or seven dollars had been stolen from his wallet and that the doors and windows were forced open. Authorities believed that she was attacked with a nearby table lamp. They suspected ex-convict James Gleason and arrested him shortly after. They later released him due to a lack of evidence. Investigators at this point were publicly speculating that the attack were, was connected to the Bissumer and Maggio incidents. A couple months later, on August 10, 1918, Pauline and Mary Bruno had woken to the sounds of their uncle, Joseph Romano, in his room, his age is undetermined, but it is said that he is an older man. When they had found him, he was found with blunt force trauma to the head that resulted in two open cuts on his skull. The attacker had fled the scene once the girls arrived, and they would go on to describe him and, and I quote, a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat, end quote. Joseph Romano, although severely injured, had walked to the ambulance once it arrived. The home was destroyed, but there was nothing stolen. Authorities would find that a panel on the back door had been chipped away, and a bloody axe was found in the backyard. Two days later, Joseph Romano had passed away due to severe head trauma. With Romano's passing, it had incited panic within the city. The police would then get many reports of sightings of the axemen and few would call in to report that they found axes in their backyards. A retired detective, John D'Antonio, had found the similarities within the attacks uh, to a previous case in 1911 and described the murderer as someone who kills just to kill without motive. 
The detective would describe the person as a living case of the classic and compelling novel, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. As it would seem that, as he says, the perpetrator had a dual personality, and that he could be seen as a law-abiding citizen. The next attack happened on March 10th of 1919. Screams were heard at the home of Charles and Rosie Cortemiglia, who lived in the New Orleans suburbs. A grocer named Iorlando Giordano and his son, 18-year-old Frank, rushed to the scene to find an unconscious and bleeding Charles. Rosie was in the doorway holding her two-year-old infant, who lay deceased in her arms. The couple was rushed to the hospital and both had skull fractures. Nothing was stolen from the home. The back panel in the home had been chiseled away at and there was a bloody axe found in the backyard. Charles was released from the hospital while Rosie remained unconscious. When Rosie woke up, she began to make claims that Yorlando and Frank were the ones who attacked the couple and their child. Yorlando was 69 at the time and was in poor health to have committed these crimes and Frank was roughly 6 feet tall and 200 pounds. Frank would have been too big to fit into the back door panel. Charles would deny his wife's claims but the father and son would still be charged for murder and would later be found guilty. Frank was sentenced to death by hanging, and his father was sent to life imprisonment. After the trial, Charles divorced Rosie, and she would come out a year later saying that she falsely accused them out of jealousy and spite. Irlando was then released from prison shortly after. Three days later, the police would receive a note from the axeman taunting them. My source for the letter is ghostcitytours.com, not sponsored, and I will read it for you now. I quote, Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortals of New Orleans, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axemen. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of whom I have sent, below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to, if I wished. I could pay a visit to your city every night, at will I could slay 
thousands of your best citizens and the worst. For I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this. That it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. The Axeman. End quote. That night, New Orleans was booming with jazz playing on every corner. Bars, restaurants, and the like were filled with jazz all night long. Luckily, no one passed away that night. And I would like to say that those were the last of the attacks, but unfortunately, they weren't. On August 10th, 1919, while asleep at home, Steve Boca had woken up to a man over him and had suddenly lost consciousness. He would regain consciousness later and drag himself to his neighbor, Frank Janusa's house, and collapse on his floor. Steve's head was cracked open and he had fortunately survived the attack with no memory of the event. The police discovered the back door panel, like the others, was chipped at or missing. That part wasn't really clear when I researched. The next attack would be on September 3rd, 1919. Sarah Lawman was asleep when the axeman broke in through the window and attacked her with an axe that would be found the next morning on her lawn. She would be found after her neighbors had busted into her home after she never answered the door. Sarah had severe head trauma and she was missing teeth. She survived the attack with no recollection of it at all. The last and final attack of the Axeman was on Mike Pepitone on October 27th of 1919. Mike was killed in his sleep and it was said that there was blood everywhere. Mike's wife had woken up and had found him dead but his death would mark the last of many unimaginable attacks. And there you have it, the case of the Axeman of New Orleans, Louisiana. Now thank you for sitting down with me today and listening to, to me tell you about this case. Now stay happy, stay healthy, and stay lovely, because I hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.